moment. Um, <laughs> we're going to get into, into the book of Joshua, and I'm so thankful to be back here. Thank you guys for your prayers. God did great things while we were there, um, but uh, we've had that little bit of a break. I hope you're ready to get back into it, but last time we were together, we were in Joshua chapter 13, and we were in verses 1 through 7, and as we were working in that section, what we saw was God was giving Joshua some very specific instructions of how it would be that they would actually fully um, possess the promised land. That was God's intention for them. So he gave them five basically things that they need to do, five instructions. And I paraphrased them into these five points. I said, uh, first of all, God told him, you need me now more than ever. Uh, keep your eyes on completing your mission. Don't underestimate your enemy's strength. Trust me for the victory. And your job is to do my will. And it was Joshua, if he would simply do those five things, God was saying, listen, you're going to be successful. You will succeed. You will possess the promised land. And what we saw as we looked into them was how directly applicable they were to our lives as well. The exact same concepts for us, applying them into, for them, it's a physical place. For us, it's our spiritual promised land. What it is God wants for us. We heard about it in our song, man. The love of God, fellowship with God. So understand, our spiritual promised land for you and I is a place of peace and rest and love with God. It is a place where we experience His fellowship. And what we have to realize is the fact for us, ultimately, as these Israelites are working, their job, right, is to, is to expel those things, those people that were not pleasing to God. What God's telling us in order to accomplish or to, in order to, to possess our promised land is that we're supposed to get unholiness out of us. Those things that we've allowed into our lives, we're supposed to deal with them. There are things that we allow in our daily walk that are not pleasing to God. And if we're ever to get ever closer to God, it's going to be through expelling those things in our life that are not pleasing, seeking holiness, we might say. We see in Scripture in Leviticus 20, verse 7, he says, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, we're familiar with these verses. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So this is God's desire for us, right? If we were to set up and we said, you know, what is, what is God's desire? How, what is the promised land? If we could picture it, we can almost picture it here. Be ye holy, for I am holy. He says, listen, this is where I dwell in holiness. And guess what? If you want to be really close to me, guess what you need to be? You need to be holy like I am. So it's all about holiness. But unfortunately, that's not really what most Christians in the world today are seeking. That's not the driving force for most people's lives. Not post, post, most folks don't wake up every morning going, man, holiness, holiness, holiness. That's not what we think. But in order for us to be holy as he is holy, this means that we're to separate ourselves from the carnal sensuality that our culture promotes. Okay. Now, this is not what, unfortunately, most Christians are doing at this point in time. God kind of gives us indicators of where things are in the world. And we hear Scripture speaking prophetically from thousands of years ago, talking to the day that we live in, even as we speak. If we were to look at 2 Timothy chapter number 3, that, that, the, the laundry list from verse 1 to verse 4 is basically a laundry list of all the things that are going on in the world today. It's a list of sins that we see so prevalent, not only in people's lives all around us, but man, anywhere you look, the sins are everywhere. But he ends up in verse number 5 saying this, saying, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And then he makes this phrase, from such turn away. Okay, So we hear this and we go, okay, having a form of godliness. So these are people that appear 
to be godly. These are people that have a form of Christianity or a form of religion in their life, but they're denying the power thereof. And what God says is for us to turn away from. He's warning us about people that claim to be followers of Christ who have embraced this sensual, carnal life, and they live a double-minded life. We're not to emulate their behavior. We don't look and go, look, you know what? Well, so-and-so's a Christian. Look what they do. Well, someone's over as a Christian. Look how they look. What they look where they're going. Look what they're doing. Look, and we look at ways that we can uh, compromise. Right? Compromise is not of God. Listen, this compromising God's truth, understanding God's standards for what what holiness is. We won't attain holiness by trying to alter it. Now, a lot of times we want to fit into our culture. We want to be considered woke or we want to be considered um, uh, what's the word I would say non-threatening or acceptable. By our culture, but the Bible says that we're supposed to be a peculiar people, right? We're not supposed to look like the rest of the world. We're supposed to, to stand out. So what we see is that last part of that phrase is what I want to point out. It says, it says, from such turn away. Now, the word repent means to turn away. So it's saying, listen, you need to turn away. So if you have friends in your life, people that claim to be Christians, that are, listen, living lives that are carnal, that you go, you know what, there's some stuff I don't agree with, but I really like hanging out with them. He's telling you, hey, listen, you know what, you're supposed to speak some truth into their life, and if they will not turn back to God, then you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to turn away from them. Right. Don't allow their influence to impact you, because this is, this is dangerous, and we're going to get into this. So this repentance from the world. And what it means is that we're going to simply, we're going to repent, we're going to choose to turn from the things of the world, and in turning from the things of the world, guess what, there's only one of the choice. We turn to God, right? So there's a repentance from the world and a turning to the Lord. Our job is to drive wickedness out of our lives. And in doing so, as we do this, we inevitably get closer to the Lord. He wants us to experience and possess our promised land. He says, this is where I dwell. I want you to be where I am. Come closer to me. And the world's going, no, 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 no. Come over closer to me. Right. I've got all kinds of things that you're going to love. And your flesh is like, mm, I do love all that. And there's that draw, that pull. Now, what we're going to see is God wants us to be holy. If what's interesting is we look at this is be ye holy as I am holy. Be, that is a present tense verb. Be, not, he says, not, not, I don't want you to be holy tomorrow or the day after or next week or next month. I want you to do it right now. See, this is God's desire. So what the only thing that's stopping us from being holy, guess who it is? Us, right? We are our own worst enemy. Our Heavenly Father has given us His Word. He's adopted us into His family through the death, burial, and resurrection of His only begotten Son. He's cut us away from the penalty of death that should take us to hell. In Colossians 2, verse 11, it says this, In whom also, listen, in whom also ye are circumcised, okay, with the circumcision made without hands. This is a spiritual circumcision. This is a cutting away in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you and I are cut away from the penalty that we deserve. God has done that for us. He's placed His Spirit Within us, hello, we have all that we could possibly need. We have the power through God to shun this world, to cut away from its sinful influence, and to embrace God wholeheartedly. We have the ability to do so. But it's that struggle that's within us. The Israelites' job was to expel those things, those individuals that were unholy, those ones that, were, that stood contrary to God. And what happened, God said, listen, you know, I'm calling you to the borders of your promised land to expel those things that you have found that have allowed themselves to be entrenched in you.
Because what happens is many times we make little tiny compromises for things that we know aren't pleasing to God because they're not really big. You know, I know I had this little issue, but you know, it's not that big a deal. I'm working with the big stuff, but God understands. God never gives us a cut on that. It's like there is no, like, God doesn't wink. Like I, one of the pastors when I was in Malawi was talking about this horrific teaching of sin that was allowed in ministry because the pastor said, you know, but because of all the great things we're doing, God winks at those other things. And I'm like, oh, man, wait till you stand before the Lord on judgment seat and say, oh, your Lord, remember that wink thing? He's going to go, hate to break it to you, buddy. There was never a wink, Right. Amazingly, people create things to make sin okay in their lives, and we cannot. whole thing is about expelling them. It says, from such, turn away. Turn away. Turn away from the things of the world and turn to God. Okay, that's the driving force that God's trying to get us to hear every single day. And as you go to your Bible, it's going to be time and time again. Turn away from the world. Turn to me. Turn away from the world. Turn to me. But every day the world's going, no, turn to me. Turn to me. I have all the answers of anything you would ever need. All the TikTok philosophers in the world can give you every bit of knowledge that you possibly need if you just spend enough time scrolling or whichever way, I don't know, whichever way it goes. doesn't matter. But the point is this. As we get back into the book of Joshua, what happens now, recognize at this point in time, they have dealt with most of the strongholds. They've been wiped out. The kingdoms have collapsed. But even though the power, the, the places of power have fallen, the population, the pagan population still exists. This place is still covered with people that have pagan faith. They are still enemies of God. Joshua 13, 7, where we fin- up, finished up last time, reveals to us that there's a shift in the way that warfare is going to take place. Before, they worked as a unified body. Joshua 13, 7 says this, Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So no longer would they function as a unified army. No longer are they functioning that way. Now what's happening is each one of the individual tribes is going to take responsibility to cleanse their own allotted portion of the promised land. But it's interesting that God tells us specifically there, he says, this is to be divided amongst the nine and a half tribes, not the 12. Okay? God's intention from the beginning was it would be for, would be for the 12. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the two and a half tribes who have chosen to settle outside of Canaan. Verses 8 through 13 are going to show us something that we've studied before, but we need to see. It's going to show us that how Moses, along with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, were in direct disobedience to the will of God. And in so, in this passage, what we're going to see is the fact that as they implement their plans for themselves, which is what this Joshua chapter 13, verses 8 through 13 show us, they are going to be going directly contrary to God's intentions for them, God's provisions for them, and God's conditions for them in the message this morning, which is called the wisdom of man. It's an oxymoron because we have no wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today, for loving us, providing for us. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the opportunity to bring your word today. I have studied, I have prayed, I have sought your face, and Lord, I am confident that you've spoken to me. I'm asking you, Lord, to to speak through me. Uh, Lord, that my stumbling tongue and my wandering mind would not get in the way. Would you remove the human element, Father, that we would just hear from you what you need us to hear. And Lord, help us to leave this place being a little bit more shaped into the image that you created us to be. Lord, help us to seek that promised land, which is in your loving arms. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Joshua 8, or 13, verses 8 through 13. It says that when the, uh, with whom the Reubenites and the Gadites have received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond Jordan eastward. And as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them, 
from Eror, that is upon the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the river, and all the plain of Medeba, and Dibon, and all the cities of Sahon, king of the Amorites, which reigned, it reigned in Heshbon, unto the border of the children of Ammon, and Gilead, and the border of the Geshurites, and the Mashathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, and Sokah, all the kingdom of Og, and Bashan, which reigned in Ashtaroth, and in Edri, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for these did Moses smite, and cast them out. Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Geshurites nor the Mashathites, but the Geshurites and Mashathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. So, Joshua chapter 13, verse 7 ends, if we pay attention, it ends with a comma, okay? The last thing mentioned there is the half-tribe of Manasseh. So, we see here when it picks up in verse number 8, and it simply mentions by name Reuben and Gad, it's actually also including that half-tribe of Manasseh. And the only thing what we see here is as we go back and we figure out where's the very first time when we see Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh sort of identified in their own subset. Before this, they're always just the 12 tribes, always just the 12 tribes. But then there's a point in time in Numbers chapter 32. And in Numbers 32, this is where the two and a half tribes come to Moses, and basically they have this idea that they want to present to him. They negotiate with him saying, listen, we propose... Because of the land that we've seen on this side of the Jordan, and we have cattle, and this is wonderful cattle land, we propose to you that when it comes time to, to go in and get Canaan, that we just select this land outside. We'd like this stuff east of the Jordan. They propose this to Moses, and Moses basically comes back to them and says, Hey, listen, if you guys will promise to fight with us, and you'll promise to take Canaan with us, then guess what? You can have that land. It's it's." It's fine with me. And this is their response to him telling them that in Numbers 32, 17 through 19. But we ourselves will go ready, armed before the children of Israel, until we have brought them in unto their place. We get looking, they're displaced from us. This is their place, Canaan. And our little ones shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return unto our homes, unto our houses, until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. Verse 19. For we will not inherit with them on yonder side Jordan or forward because our inheritance is fallen to us on this side Jordan eastward. Okay? This is before they ever go in. This is before they even see what God has provided for them. They've already negotiated and said, listen, we will settle for this because guess what? It looks amazing. So the first thing we see that Joshua 13 reveals to us is the fact that Moses and the two and a half tribes, this plan they concoct is contrary to God's intentions for them. Verse 8 says this, With whom the Reubenites and the Gadites have received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond Jordan eastward, even as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. Okay, so right off the bat, do you notice this? That Joshua is reinforcing the fact that this is not God's will. He says two times in this verse, this is of Moses. This is not of God. Notice what he says. Which Moses gave them beyond Jordan eastward, even as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Hey, just so you know, this is not God. This is Moses' job. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice in the same verse. Remember that God's promised land, his plan for the Canaanite, was that they would inherit, all of them, the 12 tribes, would inherit the promised land that he had set aside. Genesis 17, 8. It says this, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Listen, all the, all the Israelites, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan. This is my plan for you, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is where we're going to experience what I have for you. This is my plan for you. And so God's plan for his people is all of his people. 
is for them to be in Canaan, not near Canaan. But you see, that did not fit the, the narrative or the desires of the children of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They looked and they said, well, you know, this land is amazing. Have you seen, have you seen this? It's beautiful. It's open grasslands. It's absolutely, it's gorgeous. And based upon what they see, right, the reasoning that they must have come up with based upon what they chose was they must have concluded that, that God had made a small error in regard to what was actually best for them. He didn't recognize what was actually the best thing for them. So in order to help him out, they decided they would bring their own plan just to help him to get some insight into what was really, really good for them. So they present their case to Moses. And Moses, being God's representative, he listens to them. And you know what's amazing? As he does not tell them, God told us back in the promised land, it was for all of us, don't settle for this. This this can't be right because this isn't God's will. He doesn't say anything like that. He compromises to their desires. He bends to their fleshly desire that's not based upon being led by God, being led by what they see. Joshua. Joshua's recording this for us. Moses doesn't tell them, hey, you know what? God knows what's best. Just trust him. Just trust him. He bends his will and denies. He bends, he bends to their will and denies God's. Can I tell you this? If you ever come to me and you say, hey, pastor, I'd love to get some advice from you. I got this plan for my life. And let me just tell you, if it does not line up with God's word or God's standards or biblical, clear biblical will for you, I'm going to tell you so. Amen. And if I don't, get a new pastor. I'm just telling you. Because Moses, Moses drops the ball here. He's not doing them any favors. He is not helping them in any way, shape, or form. He's setting them up for failure. As leaders, listen, we're all developing in our leadership. We're all going to have influence over people. As leaders, for God, we have to speak the truth in love to people when sometimes they don't want to hear it. Sometimes you have to have conversations with people and you have to confront things in their life, not because you're trying to judge them, but because you're trying to help them. Right? right? What is it? Ephesians 4.15 says this, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. And here's the purpose. Why do we speak the truth in love? What's the purpose of it? may grow up into Him in all things. This is developing someone, developing them in their growth, which is, what is the ultimate goal? Which is even, which is the head, even Christ. So we're trying through this, through sharing the truth in love to get them to mature in their faith so they look more like Him, right? So that's not always an easy thing. God's ultimate goal is for us as Christians to take on the image of Christ, just like God's will was for them to possess Canaan. God's ultimate goal for every Christian, if we're going to experience our promised land, is that we would be Christ-like. But can I tell you that speaking the truth into people's lives is not always easy because it's not always well-received. Many times people come with an agenda, and they just really want you to rubber stamp what they want. You ever know anybody like that? Yeah. And when you say anything contrary, they're like, wait, 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 wait. I, I, didn't, I don't need you to try to run my life, and da 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 da, da. right? But the bottom line is, if we really care about somebody, we've got to be willing to speak. It's, it is a sign of caring for someone. Because remember, as leaders, our job is not to help people find happiness. That is a, that's an, a goal or, or something that you're going to chase your whole life and never attain. 
There is no one who is truly happy. It's just, it's in the moment. But our job, our job, our biblical role is to help guide people to holiness. Now, one of the wonderful things that the byproduct of holiness is, is happiness. It's tremendous. It's wonderful. But it comes in the form of joy. Because happiness is an ever-changing thing. But joy is something that has a consistency to it. Right? And so there's joy that can be found. Because recognize the fact that it's only through an intimate fellowship with God, through a, through a true love relationship with the Lord, where we're dealing with this sin in our lives and getting that stuff out of the way, where we start to feel the fellowship and the love of God. Because it's that in that intimacy that people find out what true joy is. Yeah. It's like they find out what, re, what real love is. It's what they find out what it means to have actual peace in their life. Praise the Lord. And so what we have to do is we have to be willing to, to speak. Now, for us, many times this may not be convenient. It may not be comfortable. I can tell you that I've had a lot of conversations over the years that I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I didn't have to be the one to talk about this. I wish I could just check out of this one. I don't want to be here. But you know what? We have to do what's right for them. Sometimes, again, again, we have to put ourselves secondarily, right? Those conversations, if if you're a parent that you've had with your children where there's something that's off course, and you know it's a sensitive subject. But if you love them, you must, you must address it. Because if we truly love them, we want what's best for them. And what's happening here is Moses is a terrible example of someone who should speak truth into the life of someone who's off course, who's trying to negotiate with him. He should have said, no, no. I know you think this is best, but it's not. This is a failure in leadership. Moses drops the ball. His compromise here is a complete and total failure. The biblical record screams of the fact that his decision to give the land outside of Canaan was a result of Moses' choice and not God's. Absolutely. Now understand, when God wants to raise his voice, okay, if God's trying to raise his voice so we'll hear what he's saying to us, what he does in Scripture is he repeats things. And you'll see that again and again, God repeats, right? He that hears, let him hear, let him hear, let him hear. Again and again and again. This is the ninth specific time that God has said that this is Moses' job, this is Moses' choice, not mine. Again and again and again. So we see this is clearly not God's choice, but Moses, based on what Scripture says. But then there's another little detail in here which also shows us that what's happening is contrary to God's intentions as well. There's this little phrase in there. It says, beyond Jordan eastward. Okay, Beyond Jordan eastward. Eastward. Now, the reason why that's relevant is because the term eastward, okay, there is a pattern in Scripture with traveling eastward, okay? So when we're going west to east, that's what we're seeing in traveling eastward. So what we see is if we go to Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, it's in uh, Genesis 3.24. When they're driven out, guess what? They're driven out from the east heading west, okay? So here we see the expulsion from God. Then we go and we go, look, okay, well, what about, what about Cain? Cain, when he traveled to make his home, guess what? He traveled east of Eden. He traveled from west to east. And if you go to, to, the, to, uh, to, the, um, to Lot, oh, a great example. Lot, who was enamored with what he saw, right? He set his eyes on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as he looked, boy, he got enamored and fell in love with what he saw. Again, just like the Reuben, Gratton, half-drive of NASA. He sees, right? And then what happens? Sure enough. He travels from west to east to make it his home. But with God. See, God always moves from east to west. 
Interestingly enough, throughout Scripture, he moves from east to west. When you go back, and remember we studied the book of Exodus, and we saw in the book of Exodus when God was going to do a great move on the Red Sea. He was going to part the Red Sea. Oh, man, here we go. And what happens in Exodus 14, 21? And Moses stretched out his hand over the, Lord, over, the, over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry, sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The wind from the east traveling west. Then the tabernacle. This is a, There's no more incredible source of biblical pictures in the Scripture anywhere but the tabernacle. It is referenced throughout the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation. The tabernacle, the tab- man, it is, it is a picture of the body, being the, the outer court being the body, then the inner court, the soul and the spirit. It's a picture of our fellowship with God, how we approach the Lord. The Bible says we enter His gates with thanksgiving. We enter His courts with praise. It's a picture of how we get to God because the inner place, that holy of holies is here. But you know what? When they set up the tabernacle, the, the, the stipulation that God gave, that door will always face east. And the back of this place will always face west. So when any of my people come to me, they will always travel the way that I travel, from the east to the west. Then we look in the Bible, and we look at the fact that, you know what, God mimics himself in nature. This is his creation. He reveals himself in the sun, the light of the world. Malachi 4.2, Jesus Jesus is referenced as the Son of Righteousness, capital S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N, modeling himself in the sun that just happens to rise in the east, and set in the West. And every day, God reminds us of how it is He moves and how it is He functions. So not only in the wording of the fact that this tells us time and time again that it's Moses' plan and not God's, but literally through the very positioning and the very direction that they move, it reveals to us that it is contrary to God. God has a plan. But we look at this and we go, okay, so they're working contrary to the Lord. He's given them clear instructions. He's shown them what it is that they should do. But what we find is the fact that, listen, God's allowing them to do this. This is, it's up to them to choose. See, like us, God has given them free will to choose for themselves. He's given them instructions. God doesn't set us up for failure. He never does. So he instructs us beforehand. He'll let us know, this is the expectation I have for you. This is what I, this is what I intend for you. This is, my, this is my plan for you. Let me lay it out for you. I'm going to show you all, all that you need to know. I'll even tell you what will happen if you will be obedient to follow what I tell you to do. I'll talk to you about the blessing so you can actually set your eyes on the goal. Hey, they know what they know where they're supposed to, what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to go, how they're supposed to do it. They have all of this information. He gives it to them. Clearly, and yet, they will choose their plan over God's plan. Can I tell you that this is always, always, always a mistake? Many of us in here can tell stories of times in our life where we knew what we should do, and yet we consciously made a choice not to do it. We did our plan instead of God's plan. Knowing in our hearts what was right, but still choosing the wrong. And these inevitably are tales of brokenness, of loneliness, of sadness, of pain, and regret. How many of us can look back in our lives and go, man, if I'd have only, man, if I'd have only. It's not like we didn't know. We knew. We knew in our heart of hearts. We just chose not to listen to that little voice that was 
drawing us to do the right thing, and we chose to fulfill our will. You see, God gives us the freedom to choose. Because recognize, if he didn't, we would just be a bunch of robots. We'd just be a bunch of automatons. If I go to my children and I tell them, you tell me you love me. Say it! Say you love me! Louder! Is that love? Good night. (laughs) If you say yes, we have to have some counseling. Um, (laughs) But it's that moment when you turn your back and you're washing dishes in the sink and you feel little arms. Grab your leg. You're like, what? What are you doing? Love you, daddy. You just melt, right? That's love. Because of their own free will, they were playing outside, and they just thought, you know what? I'm going to go tell my daddy I love him. And we're like, wow. That's what God wants from us. See, he says, I'm going to tell you what my expectation is. Our kids know what our expectation is. He knows, right? It's when they choose us. Man, it says such, speaks volumes. And when we choose God instead of ourselves, man, it speaks volumes. God wants true worshipers. Not people that come to church because they're going to check a box as a false worshiper. Oh, I love God. I love God. I love God. And then he goes, well, let me tell you what I expected. And you go, yeah, well, I don't want the stipulations and stuff that you got to go for life. I want to do this on my terms. I'll show up on Sundays. I'll worship for a little while. And I'm going to go back to live the life that I want to live. And you know, that's got to be the way it is. Is that love? No. But that's the way Christianity is for many people today. Religion is a dangerous thing because it puts people into a pattern where they can think they're loving God, but in fact they're loving themselves. And they're simply trying to put a Band-Aid on their uh, conscience so that they can say, well, no, 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 I'm doing something for the Lord. And they'll compare themselves to other Christians who go, look, they're doing the same thing I am, so it must be okay. No, it's not okay. Right? God uh, wants true worshipers, people that truly love Him. And it's about denying ourselves. Right? Denying ourselves means that we're denying what we want and we're turning to what God wants. Luke 9.23, the Lord said this, and he says that he saith unto them all, if any man, talking about what does it mean to be a follower, somebody who loves God, if any man will come after me, let him, first of all, the very first thing, let him deny himself. Then he says, take up his cross daily and follow me. But it starts with denial of self. And man, I'm telling you, our flesh wants what it wants and it, there are two aspects of our humanity. I'm going to get into it in a minute. But there are two natures that are within us. There is a nature that comes from Adam, and there's a nature that comes from Christ. There are those two. And with, so that means inside of you, there are two minds, there are two hearts, there are two wills, there are two desires. And then it comes down to this. Which one are we going to, to listen to? Which one has control? Every day we have to determine which one we will We will trust. Because bottom line is, can I promise you that if we're not feeding our spirit, our flesh is strengthening itself every moment. Because if we're not turning away, if we're not turning to to God, then we are, by nature, turning to our flesh. So we're either strengthening Adam in our hearts or strengthening Christ in our hearts. Recognize who it is that we have given control. Then next we see the provisions. This next uh, we see that their plan was contrary to God's provisions for them. Verse 9 through 12. It says, From Meror, that is upon the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the river, on the plains of Medeb, uh, 
Mediba, I don't know what that one is. I don't know how to say that one, but anyway. Unto Dabon, and all the cities of Sahon, a king of the Amorites, and reigned in Heshbon, and the border of the, of the children of Ammon, and Gilead, and the borders of the Geshurites, and Mashephites, and all the Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, Salka, and all the kingdom of Og, and Bashan, and reigned in Ashtaroth, and in Edri, who remained of the remnants of the giants. For these, these did Moses smite and cast them out. Okay? So if we look up here at our map real quick. There it is. If we look here at our map, there is a delineating line. This is, this is Canaan, okay? And there's a delineating line that separates the wilderness from the Canaan. And that's this little line right here. That is the Jordan River, okay? So the Jordan River is the delineating line between the two. So what separates what the Reuben and the half tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh is separated from what God gave them is just simply that little thin river. Keep in mind that it is the barrier that God references time and time again, the very thing that keeps them from attaining the existence that God had intended for them. So when they reach the Jordan River, God is going to part that Jordan River. The tribes of Rumigad and the half tribe of Manasseh will, with Moses' blessing, chose not to experience it. They got right to the point where they were looking across that water, and as opposed to stepping across that water and then deciding what they're going to do, they chose before they ever got there. How many Christians who have gotten saved, they've been redeemed, they have been brought out of the bondage of their sin, and God has offered them a new life. He has offered them a place of fellowship and holiness with him. He's told them where it is. He's told them how to get it. He's told them of the warnings of all the things that are going to get in the way and all the, the issues and struggles and the enemy that's going to fight against them. He's empowered them through the spirit that lives with inside of them. And yet, they just won't take that last step into the promised land. They get right there and they say, wow, you know what? I don't know. And they flirt with sin while trying to walk with God. This is more people than we'd probably like to know, right? And there are people, I'm telling you, countless people that believe right now all over the country, maybe in this church, they think that they are the exception. I can do it. And yet Christ said this in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Here's a very definitive term or phrase from Christ himself. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Cannot. There is no instance, there is no circumstance, there is no individual who is special, who's able to rise above this truth. He says, ye cannot serve God and mammon. There is no way for you to set your heart on the world and set your heart on God. You cannot do it. It's going to be one or the other. It does not work. And yet, just like I said, there are safe people all over the country that right now today believe that they are the exception to the rule. You see, it's our old nature's love for the things of the world that keep us from experiencing the very existence that God intends for us and God is willing to provide for us. And so what we see is we see ourselves in Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh who are living contrary to God's intentions and God's provisions. But you know what also? You're going to see it's going to be for his conditions as well. God has a specific plan for us. And he's trying to constantly call us to that place where he's waiting on us. 1 John 2, 15 through 18 says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, it's one or the other. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, a pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And that very thing, that pattern you see right there, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, go back to Genesis chapter 3, the very first fall. And you know what you see with Eve? She's got the lust of the flesh. It was good to eat. Man, that looks yummy. Lust of the eyes. It looked good. It was beautiful. And then there's the pride of life. But it'll make men wise. The very same lure that worked there works on us even today. And we fall prey to the same garbage. We think we're so smart and the devil's like, man, y'all are a bunch of chumps. I know exactly how to trip you up. It is no problem whatsoever. All I got to do is create the right look, the right timing, draw on your little weaknesses here and your little weaknesses here and you got your eyes on this. Oh, I'm going to make sure you see that again. And he's always working as an angel of light to create something that looks appealing to us that's going to draw our flesh and get us to appeal those things that are not of God. And we'll compromise and we'll, we'll make reasons why it's okay, but it's not. I'm not here to, I'm not, you know, I'm here all like, damn, maybe it'd be better if you stayed in Africa. I'm just telling you, I'm not here to beat you up, but I'm here to wake you up to the same reality that we're all facing. I'm facing the same thing you're facing. I got the same kind of distractions. It's the same crap is being thrown my way. And if we're not, comprom- if we're not uh, conscious of the fact that, listen, this must be our dividing line. We must decide that we're going to step across the Jordan and we're going to embrace the goodness of God. Because I can promise you, this is where our answers lie. This is where our strength lies. Are y'all okay? Because I feel like I'm t- preaching by myself. I'm serious, man. It's important. It's not just a message. It's what we need to hear. Amen. Verse 17. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, and he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time. Man, we look at our world today. It is in bad shape. It's in bad shape. It is the last time. As ye have heard, the Antichrist shall come. Even now. This is the first century when he says this. Even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. You and I, man, there's antichrists all around us. And the problem is there's a lot of people that are religious, that have embraced that antichrist, and they're calling him Jesus Christ as we speak right now. Because you know what he is? The master of counterfeit. Master of disguise. As Job tells us, he changes his face to fit the situation. And if you don't know the truth and you can't recognize the real Jesus, you will fall for the fake one. And there's unfortunately many religious people right now that are serving a wicked, lying, deceiving, destructive Jesus that is not in this Bible other than showing up as a liar. Does our love for the things of the world cause us to compromise our holiness? Does it divide our hearts as we struggle between serving ourselves and serving God? Are we so enamored by the world that many of us are willing to settle east of the Jordan? Man, we get close. We can, we can see the promised land. You can read the Word of God and sometimes God shows you something. Man, wow, you see that? It's amazing. We can sit in church and we can hear. We can hear the promised land. Man, that's what I need to do. 
I need to make a change in my life. I need to deal with this issue. I need to get rid of this. I need to embrace the Lord. I need to get closer to Him. Man, we can almost touch it. There's people we know in our lives that are, that are walking with the Lord, and we're like, man, I just... I want that. But we're not able to experience it because we won't let go of the world. It's one or the other. There's no gray area with God. There's right and there's wrong. Yes and there's no. There's God and there's godlessness. Because understand, it's a choice. Someone who doesn't experience the promised land, it's not because God didn't make a way. It's not because God's not calling us. It's not because God didn't direct us. It's not because God's not saying, hey, listen, this is what I desire for you. My heart's desire is that you would be here. So it's not the fact that we have, don't have the opportunity to do so. It's because of a choice. Every day. The two and a half tribes, they determined what it was they would receive. They chose. And see, that's true for us. Every day. We get to choose what we'll receive. Before they ever came to the banks of the Jordan, these people had already set their hearts on the wilderness. They were convinced, based upon what they had seen, that it would provide for them better than God would have ever provided for them. And can I tell you, there are Christians, maybe more so than at any other point in time, who are believing the exact same lie that the world can provide for them better than God can, and people's death, their faith is weak, and they're so easily drawn to the things, the answers of the world, and the last place they turn up looking until they get to a point in time where they're absolutely desperate, and they'll finally crack open their Bible, or call someone and say, hey, you know what? I, I want to die. I'm ready to give up. I've gotten more calls. I mean, this church is only six years old, man. I can't tell how many people called me, ready to kill themselves. Time and again, they're at the point in time where, like, I'm talking to somebody who has a gun in their hand who's ready to kill themselves. God, thank the Lord, I've not seen anybody follow through, but man, it's, it's hard talking to somebody who's that close. It's not that they didn't know what to do, they just wouldn't listen. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't choose. They chose themselves over, over, over God every time. And then when it finally reaches a point where they feel like there's no way out, then finally they'll say, what does God have for me? Why? We're stiff-necked. We're stubborn. We're selfish. Yes. Setting our affection on things on the earth. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through to steal. But, this is your answer, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth, where moth and rust doth not, doth not corrupt where thieves break through nor steal. You see, we can, we can see what, uh, what, we, what we need to do. We know what we have to do. We, know, we have instructions from God. He's repeatedly declaring to us that, listen, you're to set your affection on things on the, on the, on the, on the, in heaven, not on the earth. But you've got to make your choice. And yet so many of us, like the, like the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, will make choices and have plans and that, that are contrary to God's intentions for them, His provisions for them, and lastly, his, they're in contradiction to His conditions for them. 
Verse 13 says this, Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Geshurites nor the Mashathites, and the Geshurites and the Mashathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Now, this directly defies what God told them to do. It's exactly what He told them not to do. Remember God's conditions for them to flourish. They're God's, God's instructions for them to succeed were as follows in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and to cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the, Ger the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn. Here's the warning, right? He says, this is what I'm telling you to do. And here's the warning in case you don't listen to me. For they will turn away thy son from following me, and they may, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And so the Lord commands them to systematically remove the people groups that dwell there. He's telling them, listen, all we have to do is get them out of there. Get them and all their religious artifacts. Remove them. Because God knows the danger that they pose to the Israelites. Because guess what? They have a proclivity to worshiping idols. When Moses went up on the mountain to collect those Ten Commandments, and they had that 40 days, and they had idle hands, guess what they ended up doing? Creating a golden calf and having orgies and celebrations. They went right into pagan worship when just given a moment. And understand, this is a reality for us as well. We are, we are prone to idolatry. We are Why do people make stars? They see people on TV, and they're like, man, they just want to touch them, see them, hear them, know about their lives and their families and their children, which kind of shoes they wear, every detail you can possibly know. What kind of toothbrushes he have? I don't want to know. Who cares? But we live for that stuff because guess what? We naturally worship things and people. And so why does God constantly warn us about the world? Because he knows the danger of its influence on us. And so when we look at God and we look about what he's constantly doing to the Old Testament, you can go all the way through the Old Testament. You know what God's always trying to do? He's always trying to protect his people from the destructive influence of sinfulness because that sinfulness draws them away from him. Now, that's, that's true for them. But guess what? It's exactly the same thing that he wants for us. It's all about trying to protect us from the destructive influence of sin. That's his concern for America. It's his concern for, for Stallings. It's his concern for us individually. It's his concern for, his, for the world. Because he knows the danger associated with how this world's influence over us. Romans 12, verse 2, he says this, Be not conformed to this world. He says, listen, if you're going to be shaped to anything, do not be shaped to the world. This will be your destruction. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen, that ye, it says that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want you in the promised land. Don't be conformed to the world. Be conformed to the image of my son. For you see, the will of God is always contrary to the will of our flesh. They are enmity, the Bible says, one of the other. And this wicked world who just constantly seeks to do one thing, which is defy God, He's going to prey upon our sinful desires to draw us into sin because that sin separates us from our loving God, which puts us away from his presence. So God tells us to separate ourselves from the world, separate ourselves from the world. So I'm almost done. Second Corinthians 6, four, I've got what, five more, six, eight. No, no I'm just kidding. Second <laughs> uh, Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. Being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Saying, listen, you know what? 
You shouldn't be in a relationship with somebody who does not love the Lord. That's a dangerous and destructive place to be. He says, For what fellowship hath righteousness with, with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord relationship hath Christ with Belial, the devil? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them. Listen, he says, listen, I want to be in fellowship with you, right? That's what the promised land is all about, dwelling with God. That's where the, the tabernacle is going to be established in Canaan. Here we go. I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what he desires. Wherefore? Because that's what I want for you. Wherefore? Come out from among them. Get out of the, out of the wilderness and be ye separate. Allow that Jordan River to be the delineating line. You be in Canaan with me, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And here's the beautiful part. And I will receive you. Amen. You want fellowship with me? He's going like this. Hey, you separate yourself from the world. I'm waiting on you. Come on, I love you so much. I just want to gather you in my arms. Take you out of the destruction that this world has had on you. I want to restore your brokenness. I want to take all the yuck that you've got on you and just wipe it all away. I'm going to use my word to cleanse your heart, restore your broken past, and use your life to change someone else's. Then he says this, I will be a father unto you. Man, the promised land. A father. And you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. How awesome is that? Amen. It's available to any and all. The barrier, God will part it just like that if we come to him with the right heart. Cleanse yourself. Separate yourself from the world. God's telling us that if we'll just separate ourselves from the world, that we can experience our promised land where he'll receive us as a father, we'll be his sons and daughters, and we walk in fellowship with him. Again, we know what to do. The question is, right, will we do it? Sadly for most of us, we can look back into the biblical picture of ourselves in Scripture which is the Israelites. And we look back into them, we get a glimpse into our future. For you see, after the regrettable choices that the two and a half tribes made to settle outside of Canaan, and also instead of eliminating their enemies, incorporating them into their society, trying to be friendship and be one with the world, as a result of their choices, God's people, who had been offered so much, they've been offered everything. This same people allowed their hearts to be defiled and they set them, set their affection on the gods of their enemies. And 403 years after this is recorded in the book of Joshua, Ezra records for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 25 through 26. He says this, And they transgressed against God, the, the, God, the God of their fathers, and went a-whoring after the gods of the people of the land, whom God destroyed before them. And the God of Israel stirred up the, the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tilgath Pilneser, king of Assyria, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, brought them unto Halah and Habor and Harar, and, and to the river Gozan, unto this day. And the very bondage that so many years before God had rescued them from. The very thing that used to have hold of them 
for all those years. Now, so many years later, they go right back to it. Back in to slavery. How many Christians get saved, get set on a course to walk with the Lord who just won't fully commit? And because they're always on the border, the lure of the world drags them back until they're in chains again, in bondage to sin, that God set them free from years before. Not because they couldn't be free. Because they chose poorly. You and I know what to do. God's laid it out for us. We know exactly what we're to do with this life. God has so much for us. A rich and, 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 and a, a life that can make a difference in so many other people's lives that can ripple across the world. You can do things here that impact Africa, Asia, all over the planet for the cause of Christ. We can make a tremendous difference based upon our choices. And the choice is this. What will we allow to be our influence? What will we follow? Will it be the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man? Ultimately, the legacy that our life leaves behind will reveal which thing we chose. May it be the Lord. I believe in you guys. I want to see you flourish for the cause of Christ. I want to see this church make a difference. I want to see your lives make a difference. But we got to set our wisdom aside. Trust this. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. For who you are, for what you've shown us. God, for the remarkable pictures in Scripture that we can look at and learn from. Oh, Father, would we have ears to hear today? Please let me have ears to hear. Oh, Father, the, the, the battle is real. It rages every day. My brothers and sisters here are facing the same things I face, where the world is trying desperately to get our attention, to draw us away from our loving Father. God, help us to embrace you. Help us to live for you. Help us, Lord Jesus, uh, to, set our si- to set our sights on the promised land and accept no substitutes. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who maybe are struggling. Maybe somebody's in the middle of a raging battle in their life. There is something going on that they're battling against and they're struggling. They're losing ground, but they want you to see the victory in their life. If you're here today and say, look, you know, Pastor, right now I'm struggling. I am battling with all my might. That's the problem. Don't battle with your might. Battle with his. If you're here today and say, Pastor, pray for me. Pray for me that God would help me get the victory in this part of my life. Maybe a relationship. Maybe a a pain from my past. Whatever it is. Pray for me. Just lift your hand and say, look, pray for me, Pastor. Amen. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Father, we do pray for those that right now are struggling. You know the need. You know what needs to be accomplished. And Lord, I do pray that you give them the power, the strength to deny themselves, put full faith in you, and trust you for the victory. 
God, for that fellowship they can experience with you. Lord, I pray for those that did not raise their hands, maybe that are also dealing with issues and struggles. God, would you work in our lives? Would you bring us to a place, not, Lord, where we have to be at that moment of tragedy where we finally turn to you, but, Lord, help us maybe even now just to say, you know what, God, I just need to, I need to hear from you. Maybe use today to speak to them. Lord, I pray that you'd empower my brothers and sisters to deny themselves and to walk in the fellowship with you. I pray for those that maybe are here today and say, look, I don't know where I stand with God. There are lots of people that are religious that are going to go to hell. That's just a sad reality because a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is what saves us. And Christ loves every single person on this planet. He died on the cross with every one of us in mind. And if you're here today and you've never received that gift, you're watching this recorded, you're watching it online, you've never received that gift, can I promise you that it's being offered to you right now as we speak? With loving eyes, Christ looks out at the world and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He wants to restore you from your brokenness. He wants to heal your life. He wants to use your life. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ, you've never made that conscious choice, it's not about just believing in Him, but it's knowing that you've received Him. That gift is being offered to you today. You have an opportunity to receive it. It's nothing, there's no ceremony or religious uh, prayer that needs to be done. It's not about that. It's about a heart that's open to the truth of who God is. As He reaches out to you, all you have to do is receive that gift. So if you're here today and you've never prayed, you've never asked Christ to come in your heart, or maybe you've done it but you didn't really mean business with God, but you know He's calling you right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you want to receive Christ, just repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. I believe that you love me, that you died for me, and you're willing to save me even now. From the bottom of my heart, I'm asking you, Lord, to please forgive me of my sin. Lord, would you, would you accept me as your child? And Lord, would you save my soul for your glory? Help me live this life for you. And Lord, help me, Father, to know that I'm walking in the truth and experiencing your presence. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen. That's still